I must try not to sing too much before <laughs> to preach. Um, good morning, everybody. Okay, I'll try and keep my bifocals on, then I can see you. Glass water there. Okay. Um, I was born in the 1950s. Never. Ah, great. <laughs> and uh, at an early age, I read a children's edition of Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. I still have that on my shelves, my bookshelves. But I later bought and read the original bigger version as well. And at Sunday school and at even school assemblies in those days, we sang, but I'm going to say it to you, not sing to you, he who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. There's no discouragement shall make him want to relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. <laughs> I also grew up with a Welsh side to my family through my dad, and we learned to sing a number of great Welsh hymns, including Guide me, O thy great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. And when my mum was doing the ironing, she played a reel-to-reel tape machine with her favourite music on it. One of them was a song which I think was by Jim Reeves, which was, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. (laughs) All right, another on Thursday the 23rd of this month, the Americans will be celebrating Thanksgiving, which, in which they remember the English Pilgrim Fathers and their first harvest in America in 1621. In fact, two years earlier, English settlers in America celebrated a harvest. But who's going to spoil a myth with the truth, okay? <laughs> the next day is, you know, called Black Friday. Why? Because the Thursdays are bank holiday. Shops are closed. So, let's go mad and buy! We had a whole day when we couldn't buy anything. You know, it's like, what? Well, today I want to talk to you about being a pilgrim people. And if you've got a Bible, turn open it to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, in what I'm saying here today, I'm not saying sell your house, buy a caravan or a tent. All right? I'm talking, we're talking here about a heart and mind attitude to how we navigate our way through this life, this age, this world. Not make-believe that there's another one around the corner now. There's one in the future. Yes? yes. In his eternal kingdom. Yes. But right now, we live in this mess. Yes. We live with all this evil and darkness around. How do we get through this life? By having a pilgrim attitude. Peter's first letter addresses his readers in those terms. Let's read, and I'm going to read from chapter 1 into chapter 2, picking out some points along the way. I'm not going to preach every point, but there isn't time. So let's read it. Now, okay, I'm up there. Right, sorry, missed the back. Really. Okay, 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect chosen ones who are exiles, which means pilgrims or refugees, those outside the community of the dispersion throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now let's go back a bit. Dispersion, dispersion, Greek word diaspora. The scattering of the tribes of Israel to the nations due to oppression and captivity by first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians and the Persians, hundreds of years before Jesus came was called the dispersion. Those scattered people were called the diaspora. Peter uses that word to address his readers. Now, he's not writing to Hebrew people as such, but to Christians. But in the same way that the tribes of Israel were scattered by their oppressors, Book of Acts reports that many in the early church had to travel away from Jerusalem and Judea to the nations due to the persecution in Judea by the Jewish authorities. Yet that was the wisdom of God. For he always intended the people of Messiah would not stay gathered in one city or one land, but would go and infect the whole world with the gospel. Go and live as lights in every dark place. 
So these scriptures therefore speak to all Christians, and Peter uses a series of words to describe them. And I'm not going to go through all the Greek. If you want that, you can get these notes. There's 12 copies here. I've given you the Greek words and how they work out and what they mean, all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do it here. There's two lots of groups of words. One is pilgrims or refugees, those who are beside or outside the community. Another group of words is strangers, foreigners, or aliens sometimes, those outside the household or family. Outside the community, the population, the wider population, they're in a minority group, and those who are outside of the household. Now I want you to remember, when we get into this, that Abraham was a pilgrim who set out from his home looking for a land that God promised to him. And he only ever owned in that land a tomb for his wife. His son Isaac and grandson Jacob also lived a nomadic lifestyle. Jacob's family, 70 persons, went to Egypt as refugees from famine in Canaan. There they were enslaved until after around 400 years the Lord delivered them. They were then pilgrims for 40 years in the Sinai Peninsula. Let me also mention the Lord Jesus, that around the age of two was taken to Egypt as a refugee from the wrath of Herod. Later, in his three and a half years of public ministry, he had no fixed abode, as we say in the law court. His hometown of Nazareth rejected him, Luke 4. But he continually travelled up and down the length of Israel, staying at night wherever there was hospitality, wherever space was offered. He said himself, this one, this one, come on. The son of man, sorry, foxes have dens and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In Hebrews, Paul says uh, that this pilgrim refugee sort of mentality is to be honoured. It's helpful to us. All these people, he's written this catalogue of the people who died in faith, Old Testament saints. All these people died in faith without having received the things they were promised. However, they saw them and welcomed them from afar. And they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers and exiles. Now, we're talking about the world here. So let's straighten out what we mean by the world. We're not talking about the planet as such, which was a good place until we messed it up. We're talking about people, fallen human beings, fallen human nature and behavior, fallen human society and lifestyles. John 3.16 tells us God so loved the world, but he didn't love the world because it was good, but because it needed rescuing. The world of humanity is not good, but it's lost and needs to be found. It's dark and needs to be made light. It's dead and needs to be made alive towards God. The only hope for the world is Jesus, whom the Father sent and gave up to the cross. But notice now what Peter says about those programs. We're going to go back to those early verses again. We pilgrims, Christians, are not nobodies. I wish I had time <laughs> going to Hebrews 11 in mind. This is what Peter writes about them and us. You, you were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Let me pick those through. Chosen by God before he made the world. Given to God the Son to be our Saviour, Redeemer and King. We are called to obey Jesus and be sprinkled by his blood. Now that sounds yucky, but it's an Old Testament analogy. The people of Israel entered into the Lord's covenant at Sinai by hearing his law, affirming their obedience to him, and then they were sprinkled with sacrificial blood, as was the book of the law. It was a once and for all time event. So what Peter is imagining out here is that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross has sealed us to him, to his new covenant, and to obedience to him. We are being sanctified, changed over time by God's choice and grace taken by the work of the Holy Spirit and by his truth. We'll look into that in a while. These things are true now for us. They're not in the future. We have future inheritance. We'll talk about hope in a while. These things are true now for us. 
Those who believe in Jesus by God's choice and grace have been taken out of an unbelieving world to become his children, his family. Now pilgrims pursue hope. Why do refugees and migrants risk leaving their homes and set out to endure in dangerous journeys, including the channel crossing? Because they have a hope of arriving at a better place and a better life. Here's Peter again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. It's not a a, a make-believe hope. It's not a wishful thinking hope. It's something that is living. It's life-enhancing. It's life, you know, in us. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What God chose us for has come to us and is at work in us, starting with new birth. Jesus rose from the dead and gives life to all he wishes. He makes dead people alive. And we call it Being born of God, born from heaven, born again. Becoming a Christian is not, I'll just pray a little prayer, I've made a little decision. It's a big deal. It's the biggest deal of your life. It's like being raised from death and the grave. We acted out in baptism. And by the way, that table there is a baptism pool we want it to be. So sign up. Come and talk to Rana and the others. Our life is thrust down into a watery grave and we are pulled up again to new life in Jesus. It's, it's, it's a drama of something that has happened for us already in Jesus. Those who have not believed, who have not been given this life in Jesus, are described variously in Scripture as blind, deaf, dead, deceived, in darkness. But those who receive him have eternal life now in Jesus and have, we just read it, an imperishable, undefiled, undef- unfading inheritance reserved in heaven for us. And we are shielded by God's power through faith for the salvation of that day. Now that is very good news when you're facing great trials, strong opposition. You are even then being shielded and kept by God's power. Kept to his heart, kept to his mercy, kept by his grace. Not your own power. You know, we sang a song, I'm going to get through. Why? Because my house is built on Jesus. I'm not going to get through it because I've got the power to do it. Watch me. No, 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 no. No, 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 as they said. Do not boast in your own strength. Boast in the Lord your strength. So we live in this hope of being helped and held by the Lord now until the journey ends and we arrive at our promised home. But Peter goes on to talk about present trials And future glory. I've missed one there, didn't I? Present trials and future glory. Chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more precious than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, this proved faith may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Now now that you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who foretold the grace to come to you searched, investigated carefully, trying to determine the time and setting to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories of the Father. They're trying to figure it all out. How is that going to happen? But it was revealed to them, I've put in a word but there, but it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they foretold the things now announced by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things and we'd like to look into what that means, but never mind. We endure trouble with our eyes set on future hope. Future grace, future salvation. Yes, we have his grace now. Yes, we're saved and being saved now. But then is when it all gets finished. It's all completed. It's all done. Evil is put away forever. You, you, there will not be one 
milligram of sin left in you. You will be pure in his sight and in his presence. And we set our hope on the future, on what cannot be taken away from us because it is not of or in this world, it's in Christ Jesus. Now here's one of those verses that if you hear or watch uh, online, you know, somewhere on the, on, on, the, on the internet, you may find the preacher pretty much passes over the middle sentence. All right? Uh, please God, the Lord helping us not hear a lie does, but, you know, some of them will ignore the middle sentence. What does Jesus say? I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. That word tribulation is the same word that turns up in the living discourse when Jesus talks about the great tribulation. It turns up in uh, Revelation as well where he addresses two churches in, Matthew, in Revelation 2. At Smyrna, the church was going to face a demonically inspired time of suffering and testing. The Lord doesn't say, don't worry, I'll t- I, I, I'm going to turn him down, I'm going to send him away. No, you're going to go through it. But I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, he says. At Thyatira, there was a false prophetess or teacher there who is, who is nicknamed figuratively Jezebel, who was a wicked queen of Israel. And, and she's leading people into sexual immorality. And Jesus says, I'm going to throw her and everybody who follows her into a bed of sickness and give you great trouble unless you repent. Tribulation, though, is not just a sign of God's judgment. It's something that happens in life. It's not strange and unusual. It's a repeating feature of life for Christians in this age, in this world. Tribulation may be at times very severe. Early Protestants were fiercely persecuted. At other times it's reduced to sort of background noise. But the idea that we as Christians live without enduring times of trouble, tribulation... Pressure, distress, affliction, persecution is simply not given to us by Scripture. It's not given to us by Jesus. In the world, you will have tribulation. But cheer up. I have overcome the world. Paul and Barnabas knew those words of the Lord Jesus on their way back towards Antioch from their first missionary journey. They're going back down through Turkey towards Syria. It, it says in Acts 14, 14, 21, 22, they went through the churches going back towards Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in their faith. We must endure many tribulations, the word, that's the word there, to enter the kingdom of God. We might, now, if someone came and said, I'm going to bring an encouraging word to you today, folks. You go, yeah. We must through great troubles inherit the kingdom of God. You go, oh, Thanks. Oh, really? Oh, okay. A time of great tribulation came in the 1860s. In the land of Israel, the Roman armies came down from the north and swept down to, to, to put down Jewish rebellion. There. Years of horror and bloodshed ended in a gruesome siege of Jerusalem where after great suffering, the city and the temple were destroyed in AD 70, about 40 years, a generation, after the resurrection of Jesus. At the same time, Nero, the... They, the Roman emperors went from bad to worse and Nero was probably the very worst began a vicious and deadly persecution of the church in, in Rome in AD 64 Paul was almost certainly killed in that persecution and, and uh, legend says Peter was too what Peter, Paul, James and Jude were writing in their letters was in part preparing people Christians for those great troubles ahead troubles now but there's a big one coming In fact, it was the focus of much of the teaching of the Lord Jesus in the days before he went to the cross. Throughout history, tribulation of the church has increased or decreased in intensity in different places and different times, but it's never altogether absent. Let me remind you of this promise in Isaiah. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. The flames will not set you ablaze. We would like that to read, there'll never be a flood, there'll never be a fire, don't worry about it. But the promise is, I will be with you, you will not be harmed. So Peter starts to apply these things. 
Therefore, prepare your minds for action. I call this walking with the Lord because it kind of fits the pilgrim idea, doesn't it? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's there again. Future hope, future salvation. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. First, be ready for action. Ready to react, to respond to challenges that face us. Part of that is accepting, as a mindset, trouble will come. Sometimes with real intensity. Then set your hope on future grace and on present help in time of trouble. Remember Hebrews says, he's at, the, Lord, the Lord is at grace and mercy to help in time of trouble. What do you need in time of trouble? God's presence. God's grace. God's strength. God's wisdom. He's there with you. He's for you. Thirdly, don't conform to what is no longer our identity or way of life. We're called to become more like the Lord Jesus, which, since it's the full image of the invisible God, is the same as saying, like God the Father. Same character in God the Son and God the Father is to be the character that we are growing up into. Let's pause there for a moment. A couple of other scriptures that talk about conforming to this world and its ways. Ephesians 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk when you conformed to the ways of this world and of the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of us also lived among them at one time, fulfilling the cravings of our flesh, our human nature, indulging its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, you were children, by nature, children of wrath. Now we are pilgrim people because we've been just as the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt we have been set free from our past way of life conforming to this world is a thing of the past for us let me put it this way that was another time another place another you the past is another country we don't live there anymore and the sun sets free, is free indeed. We used to walk in that way. We used to conform to the ways of this world and to the, the, the way that the enemy directed people. We can't go back to that because we've been already been set free. Please notice this though. Christians are not better than other people. We have not made something of ourselves. We were the same as everyone else until the Lord found us and rescued us, just like a shepherd finding a lost sheep. Paul goes on to write in Ephesians 2 that it is entirely by the grace of God that we have been saved through faith in Jesus and made alive in him. Not ours. We didn't do it. We have nothing to boast about but his goodness and mercy. But notice notice this, there is a spirit at work in the world. Paul writes to the Corinthians, we haven't received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. John writes too, we know we're of God, the whole world is under the power of the evil one. Things are at work invisibly for us, but also in the world. Here's another famous text about the world and conforming to the world. Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore I urge you brothers on account of God's mercy to offer your bodies living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God. Now a lot of English versions they have which is your spiritual uh, service of worship. The word spiritual is not found there in the Greek. It's logical, logical, reasonable. It's your reasonable service of worship. It's the, the only thing that makes sense. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now Romans 12 connects back to Romans 8 because it's part of this long argument that Paul is stretching through Romans. Romans 8 says, Those God foreknew or chose, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God wants to conform us to the image of Jesus. The world wants us, and the devil wants us to conform us to another image. All right? 
Our purpose in this age is not to be conformed to this image, but this one. Those two objectives are incompatible. We're either becoming more like Jesus or we're accepting what the world wants us to be. But the more we become like Jesus, the more we become unlike and different from the unbelieving world. Let's go on in 1 Peter, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each one's works impartially, conduct yourselves in reverent fear during your stay as foreigners, those who are on the outside of the community, the family. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life you inherited from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot, he was known or chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in the last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Listen, we don't fear what the world fears. And we don't fear the world. We fear the Lord. Not with a sense of horror and foreboding, but with a reverence, an honor, a respect. And we do that during our stay here as foreigners. The Lord Jesus himself teaches us to fear God, Matthew 10, Luke 12. Then we come to this. This is how we get to be more like Jesus, through his word. We have been saved We're being saved and we shall be saved. The saving work of Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice is done. But as Lord and high priest and king, he's he's continuing to save us. And through the work of the Spirit, we are being sanctified. But the Spirit operates in us, towards us, in us, through the word of God. Listen to Jesus pray in 1 John 17 to the Father. Hours before he's crucified, he's praying this. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He's quoting Psalm 119. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, so that they may, they may be sanctified by the truth. Now, you, you can, we can have wonderful experiences of the Spirit. Wonderful experiences of the love of God, the grace of God. Yeah? And they may be part of our change. But the thing that is constantly, constantly at work to bring about change in us is God's word. Sanctified by the truth. We read in Romans 12, transformed by, transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does your mind get renewed? By God's word. By new ideas coming in that are batting away and dispelling the rubbish you've picked up the rest of the time. We're being transformed when truth, God's word, impacts us, challenges us, brings change to us. God's word must address our minds so that our thinking changes, and then we're transformed. We're being sanctified, set apart. So Peter reminds us about the word of God. Just going to read this through. Come on. Since you purified your souls by obedience to the truth, notice that, by obedience to the truth, so that you have a genuine love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from a pure heart. Now, I said to Rana this morning, there's a whole bunch of one another's here, but he's doing that, not me. So <laughs> leave those two. But you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, though through the living and enduring word of God. Notice the seed in you is the same as your inheritance in heaven. It's imperishable. All right? All flesh is like grass, it's glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever, Isaiah 40. This is the word that was proclaimed to you. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. What's he talking about when he says pure spiritual milk? The word. The word of God. That's the context. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now that's into chapter 2. Because the, the chapter breaks in the wrong place basically. They were added later. Not always in the right place. The Lord washes us by his word. That's what he says in Ephesians 5. He washes his bride, his church, by his word. Let me suggest to stretch the analogy. We need to bathe and soak ourselves in the word of God. Peter uses another analogy. 
We need to be so eager for God's word, we're like babies going, <laughs> feed me, feed me. Come to God's word with hunger, with appetite. Feed me, Lord. Show me something here. We're to crave it like babies want their milk. But reading or hearing God's word should re- produce a series of responses in us. First is an intellectual response. We're made to think, to reason, to question. It's, it's fine to ask questions of scripture. That's the way you find the answers. You ask a question, you get an answer. Our minds are renewed as we read and, and think, consider. Then there's an emotional or motivational response. We are moved We're challenged, we're provoked, we're stirred, we're encouraged, we're built up. Something happens in your emotions. Emotions are good, that's all right, that's good, that's helpful. God made us that way. We're to think and feel things. Then there's a response of action. There's decisions to be made, choices to be made, and actions to be taken. We choose and pursue what is good and right. We stop doing some things, we begin to do other things. Scripture says, because the word... Of God is alive. Yeah, I got the wrong answer. The word of God is living and active. I like what Peter, Martin Luther said. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Amen. In another place he talked about the Bible wrestling with him. We need to respond to the word of God that we hear and we read and we study. Hearing in itself is not enough. James says, be doers of the word. If you don't do what you hear, you're like a man who looks in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. Which is a silly thing to do, isn't it? Peter adds, so that by it, by this truth, this word, this hunger, this growing, you may grow in your salvation. Excuse me if I say this. Some Christians stay small. And it's their choice. They don't grow to maturity as they should. One key factor to that is how we handle and respond to God's word. Then Peter writes about the living stone. Can I just read these to you again? As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you also like living stones. Now, this language is a house, a temple. But it's not a building because this is a living cornerstone and a living stone is being built on it. It's about people being built together to become a place that God lives in. In the Old Testament, they had a temple, which was their idea, not God's. He had a tent. But they built a house for God to live in. Okay, graciously, he went and turned up there. All right. But God's building us as his temple now. It's a living, breathing thing of people. You, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house or a house for the Spirit to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. See, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. To you who believe, then, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. And to this they were appointed. These pilgrims, refugees, the people that the world can't be bothered with, are the temple of God and the priests of Christ, priests of the Lord. Their community, their belonging together is a, a habitation for God through the Spirit. Paul writes the same in his letter to the Ephesians particularly. By the way, 1 Peter, 1 Peter and Ephesians are very close parallels in a number of places. You ever want to figure that out? Peter goes further. The Lord's chosen people. These pilgrims and refugees, we would say, oh, those Christians, those, that minority over there. They're the Lord's chosen people. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. To proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those phrases, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of God's own possession, were spoken over the children of Israel by Moses and then the prophets. They're now true of all Christian believers everywhere. Two. We are the children and nation that God promised to Abraham, along with believing Jewish people. 
What was declared over the nation of Israel as they were commissioned at Sinai is now declared over the church of Jew and Jews and Gentiles. Peter quotes the prophet Hosea who predicted that those who were not the people of God out in the nations would be called the people of God. In other words, Gentiles would be joined through faith in Messiah to the people of God, the Israel of God. Are we somebody? Yeah, in him. In him, yes. We come to our last verses from 1 Peter today. Peter returns to pilgrims and uses both of those root words we talked about earlier. Come on, David. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners, those outside the family, and exiles, those outside the community, to abstain from the desires of the flesh and of human nature, which war against your soul. Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles, which is the unbelieving world, that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We've often heard the expression, we're in the world, but not of the world. Well, we get that from, from the words of Jesus. In that same prayer we referred to earlier, Jesus says, those you have given me out of the world. He says, I ask on their behalf. I don't ask you for the world, but on behalf of those you've given me, for they are yours. I'm no longer in the world. They're in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. They're not of the world, just as I'm not the world, and so on. He says it over and over again. If we are born of God... We are unmade for this world. We're unfitted for this world. The world wants to squeeze us back over here. We say, I can't do it. I can't go there. It's no good anymore. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm called to be. It's not what Christ has saved me for. Come on. The wisdom of this world is not God's wisdom and therefore cannot be our wisdom. Who cares what popular opinion says? Who cares what even the majority of the population say? Our wisdom comes from God. The values of this world are not his values. We know that because what? We've got his word. So they cannot be our values. You want me to agree? No, I can't agree. I can't agree. I have to humbly, courteously disagree. We are Christians living in a foreign land. We are the godly living among the godless. Now, don't give yourself a pat on the back when we say that. This is all by the grace of God. But he has called us to himself and made us the godly living among the godless. John writes not to love the world or the things that are in the world but let's, let's, and the world is passing away let's skip on I don't want to come to this point we are overcomers we're not just outsiders to the world we're those who overcome that doesn't mean we overthrow it and take over the governments and start to rule as Christians in the world and we'll be the head and not the tail hallelujah all that kind of stuff you know mm-hmm. No, we overcome in a different way. We need to understand we overcome in a very different way than that. We're not overthrowers, we're overcomers. You little children are from God. And have overcome them, the world, people. Because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 5 verse 4. Everyone born of God. Let me say that again. Everyone <laughs> right, born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, our simple trust in Christ. Who then overcomes the world? I've just answered it for you. Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Simple faith in Jesus, Son of God, causes us to overcome the world, to get over it, to get through it, to get 
to get you know, ahead of it. So we are outsiders, and we may increasingly feel that, know that, being outsiders. But we are overcomers. Because we do not conform, because we speak the truth of God's word, because we carry on through these things, simply, continually trusting in Jesus, we will overcome. And some people overcome by laying their lives down. Yeah? Read Revelation. Okay, finishing up. Those words that Peter uses, you know, we're a people who are outside the community, we're outside of the family, we're something else, we're over here and we're, some of us, they, they want to disregard us, they want to, they want to dispute with us, they want to uh, cause us to be, you know, you know, rejected. But we have our community and family. Here's Peter, sorry, not Peter, Paul in Ephesians parallel passage turning over his head listen therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household which is family built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him the whole building is fitted together and grows and so on you know same as Paul Peter we once were strangers and foreigners to the kingdom of God and the family of God But in Jesus Messiah, we are now members of God's nation and children in his family. Citizens of his nation and kingdom, children in his family. It can't get better than that, can it? Now, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, great Christian classic, but it bears the mark of its time because it was written when nonconformists, those who dissented from the Anglican restrictions on faith and worship at that time, couldn't meet together. Their books were burned. They could be imprisoned as Bunyan was for preaching and publishing the truths of Christ and the gospel. So Bunyan pictures Pilgrim as a solitary Christian who encounters many trials, but he's helped by a number of people along the way for a time here and a time there. That is in some ways an unhelpful way of thinking because too often people think of being a Christian only in personal and individualistic terms. It's a Western stronghold of thinking. Me, me, mine. The scripture points us to this. We are members of one another. We are the family of God. We are his community in the world. Jesus foretold that some of those who became his followers would be rejected by their families. In fact, Jesus was for a time rejected by his family. Come read the Gospels. Throughout these past centuries, ever since Jesus ascended back to heaven, Those who suffer the loss of their natural family find a new family in the church of Christ. Throughout his letters, Peter, uh, Paul rather, repeats these phrases. There's probably a few more, but these are the ones I remembered. One God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one body, one another. And one another, get this right, one another is a result of all of those. Because there is one God and one Lord and one Spirit and one faith and one baptism and one hope and one body, we get to do one another. So it's not, oh, we've got to love one another. Oh, come. (laughs) It's on the background of all of that stuff. All the preceding pushes us to this conclusion. All right? Our loving and serving our fellow Christians and obedient to the new commandment of Jesus is the fruit of true faith and a sign of to the world so finally now I'm not going to do a Paul and do a finally I really do only two pages left (laughs) finally we are a pilgrim people and I just want to mention this okay you can argue with me about it afterwards if you want to we as Christians need to have some thought and regard for the people who are refugees in this world who flee for their homes because of oppression Some who seek to come here are those people. And some of the attitudes and words politically and popularly used in this country about refugees and migrants is dehumanizing, and I'm going to say unchristian. The Old Testament law said that a duty of care, even love, towards foreigners. 
on the basis that the children of Israel were to remember that they too had been foreigners in the land of Egypt. And in the notes I've given you all those scriptures. Foreigners in Israeli, Israeli society were to receive the same justice and care and provision as Israelite orphans and widows. To be fed, to be clothed. And Hebrews 13.12 talks about the love of strangers. or hospitality. It says, most versions, hospitality to strangers. But the word there in the Greek is love of the stranger. Now, love of a stranger, which is, okay, I'll give you the Greek word, philozenias, is entirely the opposite of xenophobia. Refugees and humans... Uh, refugees and migrants are human just like us and some of them are our fellow believers some amongst them are our fellow believers some of the people coming over to Syria were Christians fleeing Syria in the same crises we might make the same choices just a thought to leave with you three headlines to close confess pilgrims confess Confess that Jesus is your Lord and you are his follower. Simply that. I'm following you, Jesus. Christian faith begins with believing and confessing. Believing the truth about Jesus, his life, death and resurrection for us. Then confessing that faith, that Jesus is Lord. Then we should be baptized in water, as I described. Publicly confessing him, identifying with him, committing ourselves to follow him. You are then set on a new course, a new way of life. A journey through this world and this life. But all the time, you keep confessing. Simply this. Jesus is Lord. God, 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 everything I am and have is by God's grace. Then connect. Connect with your fellow pilgrims. That's why I did that picture with a bunch of them walking to Canterbury or somewhere. I don't know where. Having become a Christian believer, you need to get connected to other Christians in a local church, community, and family. The ancient Apostles' Creed, probably just a few hundred years after Jesus' time, says this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Worldwide, that's what the word Catholic there means, the Holy Worldwide Church, the communion of saints. We don't just believe in communion of saints, when we all get to heaven. Now, here on earth, the communion of the saints. We need each other. We need one another as we travel towards our goal, our destiny, our inheritance in the kingdom of God. Fellowship is not optional. It's essential to our stability and growth in the Lord. It's one of the ways the Lord delivers grace and help to us through one another, along with prayer and scripture and worship. Lastly, choose. Pilgrims, choose. We choose wisely how we connect with the world. As Christians, we live in a hostile environment. What goes on in the world doesn't just come from humans, but also from the work of the devil, as we saw earlier. It is the work of the enemy to divert, distract and deceive us away from this life of faith in Jesus. In our time, he employs some very modern tools to do that. He would like to destroy us or at least destroy our faith. But he'll settle for deceiving, diverting and distracting us. And then as a people, as a community, he he aims to divide us, to disassemble us, to, to disperse us with the objective of dispossessing us and leaving us empty-handed and bring us to dishonor, despair, depression. But we need to make wise decisions to be discerning. Paul writes to the Corinthians, all things may be lawful for me, but they're not all good. They're not all helpful. They're not all honoring to God. We have choices to make. And the more complex our lives we get with more apps and more technology, the more choices we need to make. We are pilgrim people, my brothers and sisters. Don't become entangled with the world, with its fads and philosophies and theories and conspiracies and preoccupations. What they worry about is not our worry. Do not love what they love. Do not fear what they fear. Fear and love the Lord. Handle carefully news reports, social media, online information. Some of it is deceitful and harmful, but much of it is simply rubbish. It's unhelpful to us as followers of Christ. Handle money, wealth and possessions as a steward, not as an owner. What you have is given you by God. Handle this world as something that is passing away, is impermanent. What we have in Christ is absolutely unshakable.
those who love this world or love money fall away from faith in Christ and there are biblical examples of that not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament too people who walked with Paul went away went back into the world he urges his his, his, his apostolic delegates to talk to people about the love of money and warn them against it we are pilgrim people together in this world because we belong to Jesus stay close to him stay connected to your brothers and sisters in the Lord seek fellowship stay with your Bible seek hunger for truth set your hope on what lies ahead being with the Lord in his eternal kingdom Amen. Amen. Amen let's pray Jesus Lord you invited your disciples not just three or twelve but a whole seventy and more of them to follow you you were their rabbi they were your disciples Lord we every one of us whether we've thought about it much before today or not are in that same position we are those who are following Jesus listening to his words being shaped by them and changed by them sometimes deeply challenged by them but we're here to obey you and to become more like you and in doing so Lord we feel the pressure of this world it's like the, the dial's been turned up we feel under more pressure than ever before to conform, to stop saying what we're saying and doing what we're doing and just fit in but we can't do it Lord because you've unmade us for this world you've remade us for yourself so we pray you'll give us a sense of sober mindedness ready for action ready to respond to situations ready to stand up for the truth ready to humbly submit we cannot be like that we cannot do that we cannot agree with that because we are yours we didn't choose you you chose us we didn't fight our way into faith you gave us faith Jesus we thank you and bless you for your great saviour towards us we pray that we may earnestly learn how to follow you better Amen Amen. Thank you. This note's there.